The Hamlet Podcast, episode 94. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanmerty. After a brief interlude, during which we got a little insight into Danish dramatic criticism and a look at how everyone in the audience is responding to the show, the murder of Gonzago continues now that a new character has entered. Hamlet has already rather enthusiastically identified him as the murderer, and we already know that his name is Lucianus. He brings us back into the play's rather overdone theatrical language. Thoughts black, hands apt, drugs fit and time agreeing, confederate season else no creature seeing, thou mixture rank of midnight weeds collected, with Hecate's ban thrice blasted, thrice infected, thy natural magic and dire property. On wholesome life usurp immediately. We have already had a few suggestions for the speech that Hamlet might have inserted into the play. This is the last option, and I think this has the best case to be made for it. While the text is in the same almost sing-song rhyming couplets that we've heard from the King and Queen, it's a bit more sophisticated than we've heard already. I've seen a few productions wherein Hamlet mouths along with it. It's a simple acting choice, but can be very effective in performance. Lucianus begins with a list of the circumstances that have all come together. Thoughts black, hands apt, drugs fit, and time agreeing. Conveniently enough for a murder, he has the dark thoughts, hands ready to commit the deed, poison strong enough to do it, and a suitably timed opportunity. Better yet, as he continues, the time is perfect. Confederate season, else no creature seeing, means that all the circumstances are allied, or confederate, for this purpose, and there are no witnesses. Lucianus produces some kind of vial of the poison, and he addresses it. Thou mixture rank of midnight weeds collected, with Hecate's ban thrice blasted, thrice infected, thy natural magic and dire property on wholesome life usurp immediately. This kind of language might sound familiar to anyone who's ever seen or read Macbeth. Rank mixtures and midnight weeds are certainly the domain of the witches in that play. The figure of Hecate actually appears on stage in some editions of that most witchy of plays, but here Lucianus mentions her and her curse, whether it's the ban or the bane, as a means of suggesting just how dark and scary this poison might be. This is not your common or garden leprous distilment. This one is cursed by the worst. Not only that, it's been secured three times, thrice blasted, thrice infected. Three is a number very much associated with binding curses and with witchcraft. There are three witches in Macbeth, remember, and their most famous incantation begins, Thrice the brinded cat hath mewed. Lucianus is giving us the greatest hits of Elizabethan witchcraft. There's midnight, hecate, triples, and poison. He calls on the mixture's natural magic and its dire properties, which are so toxic that they will, on wholesome life, usurp immediately. In other words, as soon as he pours the poison into the king's ear, it will kill him. The best argument for this being Hamlet's text is that he manipulates the word usurp, which we would normally hear in a political context for someone who, for example, usurps another's throne. It works too for the poison usurping the king's life, 
but it's hardly an accident that Hamlet wants to combine the presentation of the murder with the language of political takeover directly in front of the man he's trying to catch out. Hamlet himself can't control his excitement, and just as the stage directions instruct that Lucianus pours the poison into the ear of the sleeping king, he bursts in with his own commentary. He poisons him in the garden for his estate. His name's Gonzago. The, the story is extant and written very in and writ in choice Italian. You shall see anon how the murderer gets the love of Gonzago's wife. As if trying to insist that this is a real play and not the trap he has laid, Hamlet eagerly explains that the player king's character is Gonzago and that the whole thing is written in choice Italian. The drama here is, of course, coming from Hamlet drawing the parallel between Lucianus and Claudius. He's all but screaming it for everyone to hear. He poisons him in the garden for his estate. You shall see anon how the murderer gets the love of Gonzago's wife. There's really no way for Claudius not to react, and of course he does. In very quick succession, the king stands up, the play is terminated, and the king storms off. It's Ophelia who points this out and says so. The king rises. Hamlet, now almost delirious with this excitement of being proved right, taunts Claudius. What? Frighted with false fire? This line is not in the second quarto, but it does appear in the first and in the folio. I love it because it's such a jab. Come, your majesty, are you so afraid of a play? False fire also conjures the image of the candles that might have been set out to illuminate the performance. Gertrude, presumably having her own strong reaction to all these veiled allegations, checks in with her husband. How fares my lord? Panicked, since of course he will be deemed responsible for allowing this mess to get this far, Polonius insists that the play be cancelled. Give o'er the play. And Claudius makes his exit. Give me some light. Away. There's a general call for lights, lights, lights. Perhaps the candles that have illuminated the performance could now be used to guide Claudius out of the theatrically darkened room. It's a terrific moment. We've been waiting for it for a very long time, and when staged well, it's electric. I don't think there's any other play within a play in Shakespeare that is actually overturned so violently. A Midsummer Night's Dream, Love's Labour's Lost and The Tempest all have their little performances within them, but this is the only one that springs to mind wherein the actors are stopped and have to make a run for it when the king is so angered by their show that he interrupts. The only people left on stage after this tumult are Hamlet and Horatio. Hamlet is almost overcome with the excitement of this revelation. His trap worked, and he has seen what he was hoping to see. He seems to quote some kind of obscure ballad here. Why, let the stricken deer go weep, the heart ungalled play, for some must watch while some must sleep. So runs the world away. There's no identified source for where this might have come from, but the reasons for quoting it are pretty good. There was a proverb that the stricken deer would make itself scarce to go and die alone. Perhaps Hamlet is hoping that Claudius, thus stricken, might go and do the same now that he has removed himself. We've recently had mention of the gallad jade, and now we have the heart, a male deer, who is ungallad or unburdened by guilt. Hamlet is presumably comparing himself with Claudius. For some must watch and some must sleep. In other words, some can stay alive and some must die. So runs the world away. That's the way the world turns. 
In his excellent book on Shakespeare's clown, David Wiles makes a compelling argument for this last line, so runs the world away, being yet another reference to Will Kemp, the clown who had recently left Shakespeare's company and danced, or run, all the way to Norwich. Hamlet's quotation is a little melancholy, a little manic even, as he considers what has just happened. In the insanity of it all, he makes a quip to Horatio. Would not this, sir, and a forest of feathers, if the rest of my fortunes turn Turk with me, with two provincial roses on my raised shoes, get me a fellowship and a cry of players, sir? He's saying that even if the rest of his fortunes betray him, or turn Turk, the expression comes from the idea of Christians converting to Islam, perhaps this contribution to dramatic literature might get Hamlet a fellowship within an acting company. Of course, he'd also have to have a forest of feathers and some provincial, or provencal, roses on his fancy shoes. These decorations are Hamlet's estimation of how elaborately theatre folk tend to dress themselves, then and now. Horatio is rather measured in his response. He only thinks that this effort would get Hamlet half a share. The prince is convinced that he'd get more than that, and continues with another quotation, again from a forgotten source. Oh, a whole one, I. For thou dost know, O Damon dear, this realm dismantled was, of Jove himself, and now reigns here, a very, very padjock. Again, it's a deliberate quote to comment on the current situation. The realm was dismantled, or had its mantle removed, and it went from Jove, Jupiter himself, to a very padjock. Some have suggested that this is a peacock, appropriate enough for Claudius, the vain replacement for the god that went before him. Intriguingly, there's a chance that it's a variant on Pachok, which was a word of Irish origin meaning a clown or an idiot, and came to particular use for the kinds of Englishmen who moved to Ireland in Shakespeare's time and quote-unquote went native. Given the rhyming structure, dear, here, was... We might expect that Hamlet is going to end the little phrase with ass, but instead we get this even more startling, obscure word for Claudius. Goodness only knows why. It's sweet that the phrase begins with O Damon dear. Hamlet is obliquely referring to Horatio as Damon, the epitome of a good friend from the story of Damon and Pythias, who represent the classical ideal of friendship. Again, Horatio is deadpan in his response. Echoing our own anticipation, he suggests that not saying ass was a missed opportunity. You might have rhymed. The mild joke clears the air a little and snaps Hamlet from whatever punch-drunk reaction he's been having. The coast is now clear and he checks in with Horatio to see if he saw the same thing. Oh, good Horatio, I'll take the ghost's word for a thousand pound. Disperceive? He's now convinced that the ghost is telling the truth. Did Horatio see Claudius's guilty reaction too? Very well, my lord. Horatio agrees. Hamlet double-checks. Upon the talk of the poisoning. Horatio is as calm as Hamlet is excited. I did very well note him. Hamlet now calls for some music. Aha! Come, some music. Come, the recorders. For if the king like not the comedy, why then belike he likes it not, perdi. Come, some music. I love that it's recorders in particular that he calls for, while, of course, some composers have written very beautiful pieces for this instrument over the centuries, 
It also holds vestigial memories of music classes in school. Is Hamlet perhaps planning to annoy Claudius even further? Hamlet is still hopped up and halfway into his mad act, and it slips out, I think, in this weird little couplet. If the king likes not the comedy, which was certainly not a comedy, why then, belike, he likes it not. By God, or perdi, which is a mangled version of the French par Dieu, or by God. It's not quite a minced oath, but it's close. All these songs and snatches suggest that Hamlet is wired and grasping and excited and putting the pieces together and just generally very worked up. It's as if he's broken the seal of the play's tension, and goodness knows where it's going to take us next. Do join me next time to see who comes in the door. Hint, it's probably not anyone with a recorder. And in the meantime, be sure to visit thehamletpodcast.com for any episodes you may have missed. Thanks a million for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.